Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jacqueline Thornhill, and I am honored to serve as the 97th president. Our club focuses on youth, children's literacy, and we support our active duty military and veterans. We meet on Thursdays at Lowry's at noon. For more information, please visit LasVegasRotary.com or follow us on Facebook at Las Vegas Rotary Club founded 1923, where you can watch a live stream of our weekly meetings. Please enjoy this week's speaker. Well, it's an honor to introduce Tom Thomas. I don't have any prepared remarks, which is a good thing, because I left my reading glasses at the office, so I couldn't have read it anyways. I do want to tell you, uh, number one, he's past president from 99-2000. I didn't have the pleasure of serving under him as a board member, but um, I have had the pleasure of serving under him and with him on the foundation board. And so as we do these deliberations on what's going to happen and trying to just lay a little pipe, if you will, for three years from now with our, with our big 100th anniversary project, um, the wealth of knowledge he has is amazing, but, but it's not the wealth of knowledge so much as all of the organizations in the city uh, that are charitable that he works with. And so that, frankly, nobody really knows about. So I, I would say uh, I've noticed a couple of few people in my life in Vegas that uh, you look at the good things that happened and those kind of folks were there at the beginning with the idea or making it happen or starting the fundraising or making the phone calls. And so I want to tell you sincerely that... Um, Tom Thomas is one of them. Here he is, Tom Thomas. Thank you, Randy. Um, it's really a pleasure for me to be speaking to uh, my club, to be amongst great friends and people I admire and enjoy um, serving with in, in our community. And uh, since I'm going to be um, speaking about Kilimanjaro, it's an honor to have a visitor with us, a, a fellow Rotarian from Kenya, since this mountain is shared by uh, Tanzania and Kenya as the highest, uh, the highest peak in Africa. Uh, so a couple months ago, um, Pre past President Jim Cole asked if I would talk about my, um, my adventure uh, to Kilimanjaro, which was the second time, actually, I went there to climb. And I thought um, it might be interesting to contrast Kilimanjaro with uh, climbing in the Himalaya, which I did a year ago this past March, um, partly because um, both of those treks and, and hikes end up on people's bucket lists. And I'm, what I'm hopeful of doing is giving you some insights into whether or not you keep it on your bucket list. Um, they are both great adventures, but they do take a little, uh, a little effort and preparation. So to begin, I thought maybe I would start with why mountaineering. And you'll notice it says why men climb mountains. I'm not trying to be politically incorrect. That is, uh, that's what appears on the back of this first edition of the 
uh, story of the climbing of Mount Everest when Tenzing Norgay and uh, Sir Edmund Hillary first climbed Everest. And the, the uh, quote that you see is from a man named Maurice Herzog, uh, a rather famous um, climber in his own right since he and his French partner, Louis Lacanal, were the first to climb an 8,000-meter peak, which was Annapurna in 1950. And for me, this, is, this kind of tells why men and women go to the mountains. It's not about reaching the summit. It's about expanding our boundaries and doing things that press us into a, just a new experience in our lives. This uh, quote's even more meaningful for me because when Maurice Herzog finished summiting Annapurna, he lost all of his toes and most of his fingers to frostbite. That was the extent to which these, these men and then later women went to basically achieve what was considered to be the impossible. The, uh, the picture to the, to the right is um, of my team on the mountain that we went to the Himalaya to climb called Imjasi, and I'll speak a little bit, of more, uh, a little bit more about that. So there are many great women mountaineers, too. But in the early years, the golden years of summiting the highest peaks in the world, basically during the 50s and the 60s, there were no women mountaineers. The first woman to summit Mount Everest was Junko Tabe, and she did it in 1975. Since then, there have been many very notable female mountaineers who achieved uh, great things. Alison Hargreaves is one who was uh, really most notable. She, um, just make sure I get everything right on her. So she was the first woman to summer at Mount Everest without any assistance, meaning no Sherpa support. And she did it without supplemental oxygen in 1995. In fact, it was in that year that she attempted to become the first person, man or woman, to summit all three of the highest peaks in the world in the same year. She successfully summited Everest, and then she successfully summited K2, which is arguably the most difficult of the high peaks to summit. But on the way down from the summit with her team of four, they were blown off the mountain by a severe storm. And so she perished in that same year, not having the chance to go to the third of the highest mountains. And then finally, there's Gerlinda Kaltenbrunner. She is the uh, only woman to have summited all 14 of the 8,000-meter peaks without supplemental oxygen. And she's still a very successful and active climber uh, today. So I would suggest that my reason for, uh, for climbing the high mountains is likely the same reason that most of us go camping or boating or out on any adventure that takes us away from these concrete jungles in which we live. As I've climbed in the, the high places of Antarctica and Africa, 
the Himalaya and along the western range of the Sierras and the Cascades, I've asked a lot of other climbers why they're there. What are they doing it for? And there are many different answers, but there's a commonality that underlies all of them. They're all leaving, for the most part, urban centers, and they're looking for an opportunity to go to distant, exotic places and put themselves in uncomfortable and possibly dangerous circumstances because they want to experience life to its fullest. This picture um, was taken from our high camp on Kilimanjaro just before going to the summit. We were at about 15,000 feet at that point. So getting back to exotic places to climb, Kilimanjaro, which you can access from either the Tanzanian side or the Kenyan side, um, is absolutely a magical mountain. Of the seven highest summits on the seven continents, Kilimanjaro is the easiest to access and is technically the easiest to climb because it does not require technical um, gear. It's the, this doesn't quite come all the way across the page, um, but Kilimanjaro is the highest of the all freestanding mountains in the world, which means that it is not a part of a separate mountain range like Everest or Denali in Alaska. Uh, Kilimanjaro is just a single, giant, massive, sitting on the Serengeti Plains. It's also the most ecologically diverse of any high mountain in the world. It allows you to hike through five separate climactic zones on your way to the summit. Unfortunately, the snow is slowly disappearing. The snow mass on Kilimanjaro has been reduced over the past 70 years by uh, something like 50, 60 percent. Um, and uh, it is the most climbed of all the seven summits by far, with some 25 to 30,000 people a year going up. And because of the types of people that go over and try to climb to that altitude, it has one of the lower success rates because you see every shape and size on Kilimanjaro. And it, it does take a lot physically to go to 19,300 feet. Um, it does not have a high fatality rate. The fatalities are really related to heart attack, as you might imagine. And in fact, on our summit day, um, I noticed a guy who was struggling, had turned around and was coming back down um, under his own power, but I later learned that he suffered a heart attack and did not get off the mountain. He expired. So Kilimanjaro is considered a walk-up hike or a trek, meaning you don't have to use any type of technical equipment. You don't need crampons. You don't even need microspikes. You just walk up it. But it takes a while to walk up it, as you can imagine. And as I mentioned, you, you walk through beautiful, separate types of climactic zones that are very unusual. To be at 13, 14,000 feet and have the amount of vegetation that you see in this middle slide is incredible. I don't know if it exists anywhere else in the world. On the far right, it's very hard to see in this picture, but there are about 200 people ascending what's called the Barranco Wall, which is at about 12,000 feet. Most of those are porters. 
and they're carrying 60 pounds on their backs going up a wall where it's basically a class three scramble because you're using your hands, but you don't need any ropes. You don't, can't see the, the table on the far right-hand side, but I'll, I'll just mention that on the routes going up Kilimanjaro, for the most part, you're going to stay in huts except for one route, and it's called the Coca-Cola route. And, um, or sorry, in most routes you stay in tents except one route, and you stay in, a, in huts all the way up. They label it the Coca-Cola route because it just happens to be the most popular route for Americans, as you might imagine. They're staying in huts. They're not carrying tents. Um, when you eat, because you're eating communally and you have cooks that are cooking for you, the food is wonderful. They do a wonderful job cooking it. Unfortunately, because you're eating communally, there's also a great opportunity for viruses. And this last time I went, our group of 10, seven of us contracted the norovirus, which is the virus that we hear about on cruise ships that affects people. Um, it only lasts for about 36 hours. But when you're at altitude and you're climbing and you have the norovirus, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, I lost nine pounds from the norovirus before I basically had recovered fully from it. So it, it can be very impacting, and it would be, it, it probably uh, causes some groups to take a lot more care um, on the way the food is prepared, because obviously it's, it's all being done communally. So, as I mentioned, there are numerous routes that go up Kilimanjaro. Uh, the route that I took in March, the Machame route, is the second most popular, probably because it kind of corkscrews around the mountain and gives you the most visibility of the incredible flora and fauna that, that is on the mountain. Um, you basically need to devote somewhere between five and seven days, and it really depends on your own acclimatization, how fast you can climb the body doesn't respond well when it's going up to 20,000 feet if you push it more than a couple thousand feet per day. Um, so that really determines how long you take on the mountain. And then the cost is ranges between 1,500, 2,200, and that really depends on the level of services and the types of foods that you're eating. And if you, if you hire a purely American-based company like an REI, you will pay more then if you go through a company in Kenya like we did, we hired um, directly, we went to a local company and they were fabulous, uh, really an excellent group to climb with. And then uh, on these, these two slides, you can basically see on this lower one, that's approaching the summit. You're not on snow, unfortunately, because a lot of it has melted away. And it's a walk up hike, but it is cold. Um, it's zero, minus five, wind chill can get it minus 10 uh, on the top. And as I mentioned, um, there's a lot of support. You are not allowed by the Tanzanian government to climb Mount Kilimanjaro under your own support. You don't carry your own food. You don't carry your own gear. You are required to hire tents or required porters, guides, and cooks. For a group of 10 people, it's typical to have 40 in support. And this is a wonderful thing for the Tanzanian economy because a porter that will do a six-day trip up 
Mount Kilimanjaro will make as much as an average worker in Tanzania for an entire month. They are very highly sought after jobs. These guys are phenomenally strong and they're wonderful, happy, energetic, engaged people. We spend a lot of time just sitting around talking to our porters because it was so much fun to get to know them. They are, um, they are limited on the loads they're able to carry. So they can't carry more than 40 pounds of group gear, and then they carry their own stuff in addition to that. So typically, they're, they're carrying about 60 pounds up these mountains, which is a good load. It's a very good load. So now let me move on to, uh, to the Himalaya and, uh, and talk briefly just a, a little bit about the difference between going and trekking in uh, Africa and trekking in, in the Himalaya range. It is very popular now. There are a lot of groups servicing trekkers going into Everest Base Camp, and that's kind of what you hear. Um, to get to Everest Base Camp is a nice long trek up the Kumbu Valley. Um, it's a national park. It's serviced with lots of little villages along the way um, with names like Dingboche and Tengboche and the Namche Bazaar. There are beautiful monasteries at each of these villages. Um, most people going into the, to the Himalaya are doing so because they want to do a trek, and most of the treks go to the Everest Base Camp because of the mystery and the mystique of Mount Everest being the highest peak in the world. We went there with uh, a desire to climb a high mountain as opposed to go to Everest Base Camp. And the mountain we chose is called Imjasi, um, which means island peak because it kind of stands alone in the middle of the Imja Glacier. It's five miles to the southeast of Everest, and it's in the shadow of um, Lhotse, which is the peak just next to Everest. So while we were climbing on Imjasi, or island peak, we couldn't see Everest because... All we could see was Lhotse. But Lhotse is at 27,800 feet. So we were always craning our necks to look straight up at this unbelievable mountain above us. Um, interestingly enough, Imjasi, the first time it was climbed, was by Hillary and his team in 1953. They used it to acclimatize to get ready to climb Mount Everest. So that was the, the first time it had been explored and, and climbed. It's also popular because it's literally within five feet of the height of Denali, which is the highest peak in the North American continent, and sits in Alaska. The, uh, the, the trek that, that most people do then is going into base camp. Uh, the average time it takes on the trek up and back is in the... 12 to 14 day range. So round trip, these, these trips typically are about 20 days when you consider leaving your home and getting over there and getting over to Lukla where you start, that's the, the trailhead, and then climbing and coming back down and flying back home. It's, it's a major commitment to go for 20 days. Um, we didn't do it that way. We cut it a little short, um, and the way we did so is we helicoptered back after we had summited from our base camp. We helicoptered all the way back to Kathmandu, and we cut off basically five days, and our round trip was 15 days. Uh, 
The cost um, ranges again by who you hire to take you and, and what you're expecting them to provide for you. But this, uh, this cost is a fully supported trek, meaning there are Sherpa that are carrying the majority of your gear and you're just wearing day packs and hiking. And that's why it's so popular and so doable because you're not trudging along with 50 pounds on your back, you've got 15 pounds on your back. And that makes a huge difference when you're climbing at altitude. So trekking in the, uh, in the Himalayas is interesting. Um, rather than dealing with uh, the multiple climate zones that you have in, in uh, Kilimanjaro, you pass through basically three climate zones. Um, but here again, it's amazing to see the amount of, of trees that are living at altitudes way above our tree line in the, in the United States. Um, you cross numerous long bridges. These bridges have all been built from the fees that climbers pay to climb Mount Everest. They've replaced all of the rope and wood bridges with very sturdy metal bridges. And as you might expect, these bridges are used by people and animals, and any of the animals with horns get the right-of-way. And it was, we spent a lot of time sitting there and just waiting for the yak to make up his mind whether he was coming across or not. The living conditions are very different along the trekking in the Himalaya. You stay in what are called tea houses, um, and as you can see from the Comfort Inn sign, um, Nepal doesn't have a whole lot to do with trademark and copyright enforcement. We saw a Marriott Tea House. We saw a Sheraton Tea House. There was any name that you could, you could come up with. There were no Ritz-Carltons. The tea houses are not heated. All the bedrooms that you stay in are unheated. There's a single bathroom um, for everybody to use. Um, it's a, not a flushing um, bathroom by any means, um, but there is one single central room, which is the restaurant, where everybody congregates, and there is a single wood-burning stove, so you get there early to sit close to that stove. At night, our rooms, as we ascended up to higher and higher altitudes, we started with our rooms basically in the 30-degree range, and they dropped down to basically about zero at at 2, 3 in the morning. So you are taking a really nice sleeping bag with you. That's one of the more important pieces of equipment that you take to the Himalayas, a good sleeping bag. And then layers. The, t the picture on the right is basically where you, how you're going to end up at your base camp. Very typical tents, um, somewhat of a communal um, meeting place together. In our base camp, uh, at the bottom of MHSC was at 16,500 feet. So you have already acclimatized your way up to this level. That's what all the walking in does for you. You're going up, going up. Every other day, you'll stay an extra night at a tea house and then go out for a hike and go up two to 3,000 feet. And that acclimatizes your body and helps you start producing more red blood cells and enables you to go to altitude. The hiking is much different in the Himalaya than it is on Kilimanjaro. Um, it is technical. 
And this is uh, on the upper reaches of, of Imja Say, the picture on the left. I've just crossed um, six aluminum ladders that were all tied together with ski rope. And I'm belaying my friend, Kenny O'Connell, as he comes across. And then he'll belay the next uh, guy in our party across. And these types of crevasses are typical. This one was 80 feet deep, 35 feet wide. And you cross them by tying a bunch of ladders together. It's basically the only way you're going to do it. The Sherpas walk across the ladder as if it's a five-foot-wide sidewalk. And we are roped in. I mean, if, if we fall off the ladder, we looked at it and thought, I think the crawling method might be ideal for this. The picture on the right, um, it's a little hard to see. This is the head wall. Um, most climbs have a crux, have a difficult section. And the head wall is the last thing you do to get to the summit of Imjasi. It's, this was about 400 vertical feet. It's a 50-degree angle. And so you are now climbing with crampons. But what's hard to tell in this picture is on this steep of a, a wall of, of snow and ice, you use a fixed line. So the best guy in the group or somebody before your group has climbed up while being belayed, and he is attaching rope to the mountain with ice screws and pickets to permanently fix rope onto the side of the mountain. The rest of the climbers follow using a device called a Jumar, which is a one-way cam device. So it only goes up and it doesn't slip back down. And as you climb, you have the Jumar in your hand, and you just step, step, move the Jumar, step, step, move the Jumar, step, step, move the Jumar. Um, it's an extremely effective way of climbing. It's the way you climb on Everest up the Lhotse face or up the Hillary step. Um, and it's been utilized for 50 years, and it works really well as long as the ice screws and the pickets stay in the mountain. It works really, really well. Speaking about uh, climbing at altitude, though, let me just... Uh, mention how, how that works since we're all going to be going up to, to Lee Canyon. So at, at, at sea level, oxygen, the oxygen content of the air at sea level is 21%. And this percentage doesn't change as you climb higher and you go higher. However, the lower air pressure diminishes the amount of oxygen that goes into each, each breath of your lung. So it's like thinking that, yeah, there's still as much oxygen in the air, but all the oxygen molecules are further apart. So when you take a, de a deep breath, you're just getting fewer oxygen molecules. So when you go up to Lee Canyon on Saturday, if you come up, at 8,000 feet, the effective oxygen you're breathing is at 15% compared to 21% at sea level, or a 25% reduction in oxygen. Here on the Imja Sea Wall, where we're climbing at 20,000 feet, the effect of oxygen is 9.7%, or a 55% decrease from sea level. And when you're on the top of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet, your effective oxygen is now 7%, or a 70% decrease from sea level. So when you hear about 
people summiting Everest, and then they're coming back down, and they're waiting at the Hillary step for others to go through, and they expire. They pass out, and they cannot be revived. Unfortunately, what oftentimes has happened is they're using supplemental oxygen. They're on an oxygen tank. That oxygen tank is supplying them with oxygen probably at about 20,000 feet, like where we're climbing. We did not use oxygen. You don't need it at 20,000 feet. You can acclimatize your body to that level. But if your body suddenly goes from 20,000 feet to 29,000 feet, just that that decrease of 15% available oxygen molecules causes you to pass out, your heart arrests, and you're done. And that's what, that's what I think was the story for a number of those people this year that we, we heard about that expired. Their oxygen, supplemental oxygen, ran out because they were waiting around to, to go up and down the mountain. As you might imagine, there, um, there are no roads in and out of these Himalayan villages. Everything serving tens of thousands of people in all of these villages goes up the mountain either on somebody's back or on a yak. It's the only two ways it goes. And these porters, who many of them were five foot three, five foot four, the Sherpa, um, they might have weighed 140 pounds. They were carrying loads in excess of 100 pounds. And they don't use any of the things that we use on our backpacks. There are no waist straps. There are no shoulder straps. All the weight rests on their backs. And then there is a strap going across their forehead. And they bear all of that weight. And we saw guys carrying four sheets of plywood up trails four by eight foot pieces of plywood with the wind blowing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Cinder blocks, naturally cases of beer. You know, I don't know how anybody consumes alcohol at 15,000 feet, but they do, and a lot of it. And, uh, and it all has to be carried up the mountain. So going to these, the, the Himalayas are the most magnificent mountains. They're, they're basically indescribable. Um, and when you go there, you're, in many ways, you are touching God. You are seeing just the greatest and the most spectacular creations. The, the picture above, that ice and snow cliff is 3,000 vertical feet high. Absolutely incredible. And then the lower picture is of the town of Namche Bazaar, which 20,000 people, and they're just glued to the side of this steep mountainside. Beautiful little city. The, 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 one of the most invigorating experiences in getting into the Himalaya is actually getting to the trailhead. Anybody going to Everest or to Everest Base Camp or trekking has to land in Lukla. This is the airport. There are no do-overs. The pilot either hits it and lands it and slows down or you're basically paced on the side of this cliff. It was unbelievable. And what you can't see from this picture is immediately to the left of that runway is the landing area for multiple helicopters moving in and out. So at any given time, you have planes landing and five or six helicopters 
taking off and landing off of a half-acre little plot right next to the runway. The FAA is nowhere in sight. <laughs> so let me just finish on a discussion of mountaineering with this picture that became very famous due to the uh, overcrowding on Mount Everest this year. For those of you who can see it, this is uh, just before the Hillary Step. The Hillary Step is, is one of the most difficult parts of climbing Everest, and it's only 200 vertical feet from the top. But you have to go single file to get through there. And when you have 200-plus people all trying to get to the summit of Everest within the same narrow weather window, you end up with a Congo line like this, and it causes a lot of problems. I mean, when I look at this, I think, why not just stay in L.A. on the 405? It's a lot cheaper. And this, unfortunately, when we talk about the, the reason why men and women go to the mountains, and as I said, it's the same reason we all go to the woods and we go camping and boating, because we, we wish to learn what life has to teach. Unfortunately, in that effort, the uh, desire to achieve can overwhelm good sense. In mountaineering, it's called summit fever. And it basically leads to this type of a situation where people have waited for years and paid tens of thousands of dollars, and there's only three days with hundreds of people on the mountain in which the weather is good enough for them to go up. Because the top of Mount Everest is in the jet stream. So on, on a normal weather day, the weather, the, the wind is blowing at 70 to 90 miles an hour. It's only when the jet stream literally drops in the middle of May and you only have 15 to 20 mile an hour winds that everybody shoots for the top. And this is what you run into. And this year, um, it was probably one of the reasons that 11 people passed away uh, within three days on, on Mount Everest. The other reason, though, um, is the same reason that there's only a 65% summit rate on Mount Kilimanjaro. It's hard going to altitude. And with this desire to summit, a lot of people trying to go to the top of Everest just shouldn't be there. They just don't have the physical capacity to be there. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak to club today. I hope you uh, are all ready to sign up for your bucket list items. Pardon me? <laughs> Thanks. Oh, yeah, sure. Some questions? Yeah. Annie? I have been to both mountains. I didn't climb as high as you did. But I just want to say that I really recommend it to everybody, no matter how old they are, what kind of shape they're in, you know, that it's worth the trip. Also, Antarctica, also another one that is worth going to. Yeah. There, there is a mountain for everyone. It might not be Everest, <laughs> and it might not be Kilimanjaro, but there are mountains for everyone. I know. Okay, so what do you do once you decide to do one of these extraordinary climbs to prepare yourself? Like, how far in advance do you decide? Do you go to an oxygen bar? Do you, <laughs> like, your diet changes, your exercise routine? What do you do to prepare? Well, I'm always doing this. 
I'm, I'm always climbing. I, three weeks ago, I climbed Mount Rainier, and in November, I'm going to the Mexican volcano. So my, my training is just always doing what I'm doing. But Mount Charleston is a phenomenal training mountain to prepare for any mountain you want to go to. It's, it goes to 12,000 feet. It's got plenty of long trails to hike on. And for many people, it's not necessarily getting ready to hike uphill. It's getting your legs ready to go downhill. There's an amazing amount of strain on your quads and your knees as you descend, especially if you're carrying any kind of weight. So you have to pay as much attention to walking downhill as uphill. So stairmasters don't cut it. You cannot prepare for these mountains in a gym. Put on a backpack, go out, and climb Mount Charleston, and you can prepare yourself for any mountain. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom, for speaking today and sharing your adventures. I'd like to present you with the Share What You Can Award, which means we are going to donate to the local USO in your name. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the words of a woman I most admire, Amelia Earhart, no kind action ever stops with itself. One kind action leads to another. Let's leave today building connections, taking kind action, serving one another, and rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed the latest podcast from the Las Vegas Rotary Club. For more information about future meetings, membership, and our local service projects, please visit lasvegasrotary.com. Now please go out, take action, and connect the world.